1: Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 at MD85 in Frederick, right next to long shots off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Clint, now that we've reached a milestone of 40 episodes,
0: we wanted to take a minute to look back through some of the age-old questions. Questions. The ones that we particularly loved. In this episode... We'll share some highlights from the past 18 months. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college.
2: So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, what is the greatest age-old question question? That's the
0: age-old question, question. First of all, when we started this podcast, we knew we would enjoy doing it, right?
2: Of course, yeah.
0: But it's been really fun to connect with so many of you. Everyone who'd spent time with our show, who shared it with their friends, commented, shared feedback,
2: ideas... It's really incredible. It's really incredible and and you've opened our minds to so many new things. I mean, I started listening to Rush and I've never listened to Rush.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah,
2: it, honestly, I'm I mean, and just there's, I mean, obviously when you're talking about massive questions like we're undertaking, we're going to miss a lot of stuff. Yes. But getting it from you guys, yes, keeping us honest. It's so awesome and it's it's This has been a highlight, certainly, of the the past 18 months and looking forward to the next 40 questions.
0: So today we want to take a look back on the first 40 episodes and talk about some of our favorite questions. And I think it's worth starting at the beginning. Our very first episode asked, can you write a masterpiece after the age of 40? And for those of you who haven't heard it, if you look at Rolling Stone's list of top 500 artists of all time, it's actually pretty rare to find one of those artists producing a masterpiece, or even a creative high-water mark after they turn 40. So, this episode asks why. One of the theories we discussed was this concept of the trap of the expert. Remember this, Clint? Of course, yeah. Let's listen to a clip. It's this concept of the expert trap. As we get older and we have success, we become experts, or at least we perceive ourselves as being experts. And we stop being students. Yes. So we spend more time defending our legacy than building our legacy. Boom. One notable exception, Paul Simon. One of our favorite records. You and I have talked endlessly about Graceland.
3: The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War.
0: He's in his mid-40s when he writes this. This concept of the trap of the expert, this is a perfect example of how you get out of that trap. He went to Africa and became a student and expanded his musical horizons and you could argue, and some have, that he appropriated this music. But the fact that he, at 44 or whatever, however old he was, became a student, he allowed himself to build a new legacy rather than have to defend the one he built the previous three decades. Amazing. But then we talked to Jeff Simons, who... This was his first appearance on our show. Yes, and yes. he's become an important and VIP frequent guest. Definitely. He's our third wheel. We asked him why it's so hard to produce great work after 40. And he distilled in about 30 seconds what it had taken us <laughs> 15 minutes to talk about. Here's here's Jeff on his very first appearance on our show.
2: Why do you think it's so hard and so rare?
4: Okay. So this is a specifically a music thing, right? Because movie directors... Uh, fiction writers historians tons of epic work done after the age of 40 there's no question that in other genres the masterpiece is eminently available to other artists so it's a music question which is really interesting and it's why is music such a young person's game i think there's a bunch of reasons one is like a great musical artist is usually of his or her moment like they're writing a zeitgeist of a particular moment And when that moment passes, it's really hard to stay in it, right? Like Stevie Wonder's writing The Zeitgeist from 69 to 76, and then it's beyond him and it's past him. And Other younger artists pick up the thing and they move it forward and you are kind of in your moment, right? And then that leads to the second issue, which is if you try to stay current with an audience that is always younger, you're probably not going to do your best work, right? Like the new Rolling Stones record inevitably will have uh, like a song that where they try to sound like post Malone and it will not be good because they're, <laughs> they're they're just desperate to be 80, but cool to 18 year olds. Right. Um, I think your hearing starts to go. I think your physical chops start to go. Like you can't play at 50 the way you could at 20. And I think most of us lose the top end and we can't make the same kind of aesthetic choices about where our records sound that we could in the past. Um, I think as a culture we're obsessed with youth in music like we become less interested in older musicians like it took a masterpiece to keep tom petty in everybody's mind right like if if wildfires hadn't been as great as it had been it might have been relegated to the cutout band and people have been well just listen to the hootie record because those guys seem younger right (laughs) i mean that was the other big record of that moment right i think that um you start to get less and less support from labels and people who can help you build a career, I think people are much less interested in like promoting the 50-year-old's record. They're like, well, that catalog will be fine and they'll tour and the, the same fans will show up and that'll be enough. I think burnout's a big deal, right? 20 years is a long time to get along. It's a long time to lug amps around in a van. It's a long time. Um, then you've got misadventure, right? A lot of artists just don't make it to 40 right i think hendrix might have made a masterpiece at 40 if he hadn't died at 27. Um, and the last thing i think is really important is if you make it big as a young person you run out of experiences worth writing about like if you're a really wealthy successful person at 25 when you're 42 what do you write about that's compelling that's like about everybody else's life when you were hungry and you were still making it so i don't know how many was that was like eight reasons so For an artist, a music artist to make something great after 40, they have to be someone who can transcend the moment when they broke. They have to be a bigger creator than the moment that spawned them. They have to let go of commercial success at the same level and just make art rather than commercial music. They have to stay in good enough shape to keep being able to play in here. They have to build an audience that doesn't care how old they are and doesn't freeze them in time either in their own memory or their own perception. They have to keep a slow burn going. They can't flame out, and they have to stay alive, and they have to live a life normal enough to have experiences that unify them with others and communicate something universal. That's a really big list of things you have to continue to do in a
5: very weird
4: life to make a great record after 40. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. God, he just has a way. <laughs> he, just, he has a way. He nails it. In episodes
0: two and three, we asked what makes the Beatles the greatest band of all time? Now, as we acknowledge, that's our particular
2: view. There are a lot of people that share that view, and it's certainly up for debate, but that debate is, it's, you're going to lose that debate. (laughs) In part
0: one, one of my favorite moments was when your bandmate, the incredible Peter Day, broke down what makes Paul's bass playing so transcendent. Here's Peter Day.
5: For example, one of my favorite McCartney bass lines of all time is the bass line to "Something." It's a deceptively simple bass line for the verse. You know, there's the C to C major seven, C dominant seven, and he keeps you know doing this similar sort of figure: dum, doo 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 doo, dum dum dum, doo doo dum 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 dum. Dee, 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 dee. Boom, 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 boom. Right? So there's your verse part, the B section in something, that bass line. How. That's one of my favorite moments ever. I will never get tired of hearing that. I will never get tired of playing that. It's just perfect then there's this little change in the last verse he never does it any other time and it's this little figure it's him sort of reassuring his friend George you know it's like he answers something something in the way she smiles do 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 something
6: in the way she knows and all
5: He never does that any other time, and it's it's
0: perfect. God, that's such great stuff.
5: <laughs> Nobody knows
0: like Pete. And in part 2, we talked about that song with the great Russ Lawton, drummer for the Trey Anastasio band, talking about the fact that Ringo chose not to play the hi-hat, which gives the song the openness and space that allows Paul's bass to really shine through. Like, okay. I just did
5: something and I never realized it. it's kind of cool because you go like, oh, there's no hi-hat on the verse in that song. <laughs> <laughs> it so much air. It's like amazing. You know what I mean? That's the magic is coming up with the magic part, you know? and It's so interesting, Russ, because we've been talking about that song, Specifically about Paul's bass line in that track, and it's just so incredible and melodic.
2: But Ringo gives Paul the space to play that melodically if he's playing it so open. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, first of all, those are some two great guests. Three great guests right off the top. Right? right off like the top. in the first two episodes. Episode four was inspired by a throwaway line
0: in Spinal Tap.
3: Yeah, well, it's part of a. Uh... A trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play it. What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. It makes people weep instantly.
0: So we examine whether there is, in fact, a key that is particularly evocative and sad. I love this conversation, Clint. And one of the revelations for me was when the amazing Jeff Simons, again, <laughs> okay. offered
4: this. So I went back and uh, I just sat for a second. I thought like, you know, what? when I think of sad songs, what come to mind? And I thought of about 20. And my first reaction is that all but three of them are in a major key. So for ah. me, the saddest songs are actually a written in... In major keys with melodies that don't necessarily belie their sadness. So maybe part of it for me is being surprised by tonally by the song, expecting one thing and then being delivered something else that that particularly mm. knocks me out. But I think like the I feel like resignation, or like or the maybe resignation is the wrong word, but the recognition of an unfixable situation, mm. like. This thing has gone wrong, and I cannot make it right, and, and there's nothing I can do but live with its dissolution or, its, or, or the, the fallout of this terrible wrongness of which I am complicit.
2: This episode also had the greatest kicker of all time, the E-flat. <laughs> the E-flat minor. The E-flat minor is actually a D minor, is the greatest reveal in age-old question history so far. In
0: episode 10, we asked the question that has definitely not been on anyone's mind, but turned out is a fascinating topic. What happened to the sax solo? (laughs) This is one of my favorites. We talked about how in the 80s, if you had a hit song, the odds were that you left some room for a sax player to blow a solo.
2: (laughs) And it was one of three dudes who played it.
0: Well, here's a clip where we discover that it's actually just one guy.
2: (laughs) It's always, it's like the same guy played every sax solo throughout the entire era. It's always the same sound. That is hilarious that it's always sounds the exact same.
0: There are a few things that define the sound of the 1980s. -hmm. There's the gated reverb drum snare. There's the synthesizer. And then there's the
2: sax solo. I mean, we already talked about Huey Lewis. Yep. Maneater by Hall & Oates.
0: I mean, that could be the theme song to any movie from the 1980s. Yeah, or Miami Vice. And, you're right, right. Right? Any John Hughes movie. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Another band, Duran Duran. Okay. Rio. I mean you can picture this video, yes. right? Of oh, yeah. Simon LeBon standing yeah. on a boat, a variety of day glow colored suits <laughs> throughout, like, the video. throughout the video. Yeah, they're yeah. like keep changing, but yeah. they're different shades yeah. of, of day glow. And the baseline is crazy and possessed and amazing.
2: But nowhere else in the... So- it, no. It, there's no, like,
0: stabs anywhere, right? Right. It's just the solo. So he's, like, backstage smoking a cigarette. <laughs> right.
6: And <it's>, oh, video on, mate. Get out there. <laughs> his,
0: his, his mom it is my moment. The same guy who played that solo played the solo in Careless Whisper.
2: Yes, that's what I'm t- saying. <laughs> there's only, like, three or four guys. I think it's the same guy who plays on all of them. His name is Andy Hamilton. Okay on some of those records. Cuz careless whispered that that makes the song. Now, since uh, this episode, every time there's a sax solo, somebody I'm with mentions it to me. It totally like every single time. Like we're in a restaurant, a song comes on. "Hey, there's a sax solo." You're like, solo. Hey, I know. "Sax solo." <laughs> totally.
0: <laughs> All right, in episode 12, we talked about artists who were in successful bands, then went solo. And achieved even greater heights. Right. In that episode, we talked about how Genesis actually produced two solo artists that achieved greater heights after leaving the band. Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins. But one of the artists we talked about, Justin Timberlake, who of course left sync, a boy band that had tremendous commercial success, but not high levels of critical praise and respect. Here's our discussion of his unlikely emergence as a force to be reckoned with. Because he was part of that band, and because NSYNC and Backstreet Boys were sort of contemporaries, they were both these prefab teen idols, but.
2: Like you would expect them to have talent. Right. Like they're actors or something.
0: So to expect someone to leave that and then become universally
2: respected. Respected and hits, babies. Crimea River. Crimea River is a good But the biggest is the Trolls. One. Can't Stop can't the Feel I mean, that was a monster thing. That that
5: that Ooh, That's a
0: great song. I know you've played that song a bunch.
2: I have. Got some great chord changes. That's why I like it. Yeah. It's also really well produced, I think. And there's something, it. it's not even a fast song. Right. But it's so danceable, and people lose their minds when they hear it. those first chords. Like, oh, it's good. Cool. Right. They get so excited. It's right. like one of those evergreen songs that will always be played at every wedding, at every event. It's a great Until song. the end of time.
0: His work with Andy Sandberg, yeah. with Dick in the Dick Box. Dick in the Box.
6: You know it's
5: Christmas and my heart is open wide. Open wide. Gonna give you something so you know what's on my mind.
3: What's on my
0: mind. He's done some great stuff on SNL and on Jimmy Fallon Yeah, like hilarious.
6: Talking about talk
5: show Talking about, about Rail of talking it up.
0: another moment in his career that I really love. He does a duet with Chris Stapleton on Tennessee Whiskey, which, again, when I saw that, you know, Chris Stapleton is this incredible singer, soulful singer, and JT can hang with him. Oh,
1: yeah. I looked for love in all the same old places Found the bottom of the bottles
6: always dry Cause there's nothing that like could love to give
2: me Yeah, the guy can hang. Side note Yeah. Harry Styles may be coming up. Gosh, you're so right about that. And and, and that was off my radar at that point, but man, he is huge right now. My best friend Dave Levine. Went
0: and saw Harry Styles with his daughter, and I said, "How was it?" Expecting him to say, "You know, yeah, was, yeah, you yeah. know, Lu- Lucy thought it was incredible." He's like, "Rich, it was like
2: the best <laughs> musical experience of my life. It's incredible." <laughs> I right, man, say what you will, they know how to put on a show.
0: Episode 16 was one of our most downloaded episodes to date. It asked, what's the deal with the Grateful Dead? And if you're a fan of the Grateful Dead, you get it. But if you're not, the fact that they inspire such devotion, a lifestyle for some, can seem confounding. So in this epic conversation, we explore what made them so special and why they should be considered among the greatest bands of all time. Here's the great Steve Silberman, award-winning writer of the book Neurotribes, but also a definitive book about the Grateful Dead called Skeleton Key. Steve's talking about the transcendent live performances that made him a lifelong fan.
6: Well, the first time I ever heard them was probably in the bedroom of a best friend of mine in high school. He was learning how to play guitar, and I remember one day he played me a recording of... China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider from Europe 72. And um, there's a very unusual section in the transition where Bob Weir is usually the rhythm guitarist, takes a lead. And it was the first time that I ever became conscious of uh, what Garcia used to call uh, the instruments talking to each other. Garcia brought from bluegrass and old-time music that notion of simultaneous improvisation and what he called conversational music. And so I became very aware that in that transition from "Trying to Cat Sunflower into I Know You, Rider, what I was hearing was a story being told without words, but it was a very coherent story, and it, it had a compelling narrative, even though there were no words. And so... I had been listening before that to mostly, like, the music of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, et cetera, Um, and, uh, you know, kind of vocal music, basically. So I was used to songs that told stories through words. But that was the first time that I really got that... A complete instrumental exchange could tell an equally compelling story. Not long after that, I got invited up to an incredible uh, festival up in Watkins Glen, New York. It was going to be the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, and the band. And, you know, I confess, I was actually going as much to see the band, who I also loved, and the Allman Brothers, who I also loved, and they were on the radio, Uh, that summer with, I think, Rambling Man, you know, so it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm going to my first Dead show. It was like, oh my God, I'm going to this, you know, possibly promising Echo of Woodstock. And so I got up there and it was kind of a miserable scene. There were like 500,000 people there. The fences broke down early. There was a weird, unseasonable frost I immediately lost my sleeping bag in a sea of mud. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no. I was like 15 or something. But as it turns out, I was a very lucky guy because there were so many people there early that the bands decided to play sound checks a day before the official start of the festival. And the sound check that the dead played on that day turned out to be one of the best completely improvised compositions you could say because it's quite uh focused it's not rambling or noodling or any of those words that lazy rock critics throw at the dead uh it was you know complete it was like jazz it was like a completely focused performance and uh it was unique because they'd never played it before and they never played it again and i ended up being the co-producer of a retrospective 30-year career uh box set of unreleased recordings called So Many Roads 1965 to 1995 for the Dead. But I put that sound check on that box set so that everyone could hear it. My second exposure was uh, 8674 at Roosevelt Stadium in New Jersey. And it, too, was one of the all-time greatest shows of their entire career. It was amazing. They had you know, quadraphonic speakers, so the music was not only all around you, but even kind of inside you. And I remember during Eyes of the World, which they were playing, I think, just second or third song in the first set. So still early, Phil took a melodic lead uh, in the jam, and I remember thinking at that moment, this is the best music I've ever heard in my life. You know, I sort of vowed to myself that... Uh, wherever I could go see more of this, that's what I wanted to do. And so I ended up seeing them, I don't know, about 300 times after that.
0: I love this discussion, Clint. Yeah,
2: I think this was one of
0: my favorites for sure. And we had some great guests. We had
2: Graham Lesh, Phil Lesh's son. Eric Graham. Who has gone to like 300 (laughs) plus shows. (laughs) We had Mahali from Twiddle. And Steve Silberman. I mean, that's a power-packed event
0: right there. In episode 19, we started a two-parter of the greatest singers of all time. Here's our old buddy Jeff Simons again, nominating Aretha Franklin.
4: I'm a, I mean, it's boring, but like, you know, Aretha, 67 to 69, uh, when she sings Soul Serenade, I think
5: Soul Serenade, if I had to pick one Aretha song. I want to be free,
6: to- So serenade.
4: Like the way she sings that is just uh, she's so out of control virtuosic. And,
2: um, and there's something about the way they recorded her voice where it like blows yeah, oh out God. the mic a little bit and like it's just so perfect. She's got her own sound in addition to her voice. It's like on record, her voice has a very distinctive sound because of the microphone they used and i don't know what yeah it that's was.
4: that's really well said and then you know like if you talk about like harmony vocalists like it's hard to beat the the beatles when they're really got it going like the the when they sing because on abbey road oh, or yeah. when uh john and paul sing the two of us together or uh like there's something i wouldn't pick paul or john separately i don't think but together like i'm not sure there's a better I mean people bring up the Everly Brothers as like the, the best duo on but I I actually think John and Paul are hard to beat for just unbelievable blend and harmonizing. Mm. I just love that I love the way they sing.
2: We did get some heat for that episode. That's so hard to name the best singer. We got, we got a lot of comments. We got a lot of, what about this person? How could you, what about this person? Which is, you know what? W- which we love. We agree with you.
0: <laughs> In episode 21, we asked, what's the greatest, greatest hits album? <laughs> because you and I both grew up with greatest hits, yeah, right? Still. <laughs> that was our gateway drug. Yep. Our way into artists and bands that were popular before our time. And then we'd go deeper
2: and find the albums. Sometimes go deeper. I'm still listening to Steve Miller Band's greatest hits. Steve Miller Band's greatest hits. Oh, God, I love 1974 that. 1974 to 1978. Released in 78. It just has hit after hit after
0: hit. And this is this is one like The Credence, where the their body of work... Was so impressive, mm-hmm. but the
2: individual albums—yeah—they had a lot of albums, and there was great songs on each album. But, but then, if you if you strip it the, the down to just the greatest hits, and this was listened to all the time in college. I, I don't know. I it, I can hear this coming from dorm rooms even in the '90s, and it was released in '78. Interestingly enough. All but one of the tracks came from their last two albums, mm. even though they had 11 studio albums at the time. So the shorter 7-inch single versions of Jet Airliner, Swingtown, The Joker, and Fly Like an Eagle are used in lieu of the longer album versions. So they took the short, sweet, radio-friendly hits and made this perfect album. I mean... I love it. It just... Let's play a couple highlights. Yeah, okay. So obviously, Take the Money and Run. Now the drummer of this, that intro drum, is Gary Malibur. And he actually produced the griff's 2004 album Life Beyond Aluminum. Your band, The Grift. My band, The Grift. And so Gary Malibur is the guy who came up with that. This, this drum beat didn't get songwriting credit, but that drum beat is very universal. The Joker.
5: Because I'm a picker, I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. My music in the sun I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker. I give my
6: love and all the wrong
2: Fly like an eagle. I
6: want to fly like an
5: eagle to the sea.
2: Jet Airliner. I mean, this this is an amazing, amazing compilation. I love tunes. it. I love that. I love that Greatest
0: Hits album. Yeah. Nine episodes later, we had the chance to talk to the drummer for all those incredible Steve Miller hits, Gary Malibur. And we asked him about the greatest drum fills of all time. Gary not only played for Steve Miller, but he played drums on some of our favorite Van Morrison records, <laughs> including Moon Dance. Yeah, it's a great it. episode. But here's Gary talking about tracking "Into the Mystic," one of our favorite songs
3: of all time. Pretty much everything I've ever done with with Van. I mean, you can I can name "Into the Mystic." I, yeah, I mean, you're kidding, right? I play that song every week. In a band let your soul and spirit fly into the misty you know that's van playing the rhythm guitar started it off and the band the moon dance unit was there and we just kind of looked at each other and just said okay here we go that's exactly what happened and he i and i'm like, he's not playing a, a you know a, a, Twenty thousand dollar acoustic guitar. That's a basic ovation, right? With the with the pot belly, you know, the round pot belly, belly. you know, from back then, and and you know, he tuned it up, and and away we went, and that's the track. That was the take. You go from him and you jump on all the Steve Miller stuff. I mean, as I talked about before with with Steve, you know, the variation, how versatile some of those songs were.
0: In episode 32, we asked, where does a song come from? An exploration of the magical and mysterious process of pulling a song out of the ether. During the episode, we discuss the brilliance of Peter Jackson's documentary, Get Back, about the Beatles sessions in January 1969. We see Paul pull Get Back out of thin air. Paul strumming his Hofner bass like a guitar, and he's just stream-of-conscious riffing.
2: remains is a lot from that initial stream of consciousness yes like a lot of those lyrics are like he tweaks them but they're right there from the very beginning what's amazing is as you say we're
0: we the Beatles are sort of catching up with us like we know where they're gonna go right they don't know they don't know yet
2: yeah it's incredible
6: Nights,
2: Side note on "Get Back": Ringo wasn't playing that drum beat right for the first. The dun, 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 right, right for the first like, and then there was a moment where he was playing it, but we didn't see that we didn't moment see him where come up they, with they that. talked about that moment. And that's for me, that song, that drum beat is the coolest part because it's, it's such it's not an unusual what you play. It, it's yeah. not what you play. But what was so cool is seeing who brought what idea.
0: Billy Preston shows up. So one of my favorite comments, Clint, that I've read about this was a tweet from Morgan Enos. He's a writer for Grammy.com. He writes that in Get Back, we see with our own eyes that Paul is open to the primal vibrations of the universe, pulling songs from the ether. And that's a big part of it, right? Is just being open. We use the
2: word vulnerability earlier, but just being open. And this is it for me because all the great songwriters have said this exact same thing. You work on the craft, right? There is craft to it. Yes. You, you, you work for years on how to craft a verse, chorus, bridge, right? Those are the sections of a song. And the more you work, the better you get at that thing. Yes. But when it comes down to writing a great song, they all say that they're just a conduit to this thing that just plops out of the ether into their body and, and they have they have enough skill at this craft at this point to be able to put it into a song form. Right. But they, they all say the exact same thing. Tom Petty says, I don't want to know where it comes from because I don't want it to stop. But the, they, they don't want to dig too deeply into what is actually happening because they don't want to monkey with it in any way. God, I love that documentary so much. Yeah, I, I, it's almost time to watch again. You're right. And it wasn't that long ago but it was because it's 8 hours and it's it's an intense 8 hours it is i didn't do it in one sitting so i mean i don't know who could do it in one sitting they would do it in one sitting what you. we should do is rent out a theater oh yeah and bring our friends and all watch it together that would be really fun clint since we're
0: looking back should we go to the comments let's go
2: to the comments let's go to the comments
0: Paul on Facebook thought we should have mentioned Muddy Waters as producing a masterpiece after the age of 40. That's a really good point. We were talking about rock and pop, and there are examples and genres outside of rock and pop where people have done their best work after the age
2: of 40, right? Absolutely, Certainly classical music. Jazz, definitely. Let's go to the comments. In episode 23,
0: on The Greatest Collaborations... Jack Gothier, the incredible producer and longtime friend of ours and a fan of this show, suggested we missed a great one. The collaboration between Peter Tosh and Mick Jagger. Do you know this one? I don't know that one. I didn't know either. It's Walk and Don't Look Back. Here it is. If your
5: first lover lets you down. There's something
0: yeah. Tell him what you're going to do. episode 28 on the best sibling bands david writes great episode fellas i'd say toto is a well-known sibling band with jeff steve and
2: mike picaro i didn't know toto was a sibling band did i you? didn't either that's incredible and yes they're high on the running holy moly to <laughs> take
0: Keep those comments coming, and if you have a suggestion for a future episode in our next 40, let us know. Let us know. Those are some highlights, and we only touched on 10 out of our first 40 episodes. Maybe we should do a part two at some point. Love it. Thanks for letting us go down memory lane, and if you can, share this show with one person who you think would enjoy it. That's how we'll grow.
2: That's how we'll grow. We appreciate you so much, and we can't wait to keep doing this. Keep listening. We hope you had a good time, as much fun as we did, and we hope you'll join us next
0: time when we answer another age old question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The
2: Age Old Question.
0: We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments.
2: But let's be kind, people.
0: Yeah.